0: Well, it is uh, a privilege uh, to be up here. Um, My name is Jeff, for those that don't know me, and uh, we are working our way through the book of James. uh, This summer, Uh, we have had uh, our senior pastor, Max Benfer, has been on sabbatical uh, this summer. I think they're even away right now, which is is great. Um, So continue praying for Max uh, and the families as they they go through this uh, summer sabbatical. Uh, Stan is also uh, away this week, and we've been thankful for him as well. So it's my privilege today to, to pick up uh, where he left off uh, last week here in James chapter 4. So I'm going to pray for us uh, one more time and we'll dive in uh, to this passage. Lord, thank you again uh, for all that we have done already this morning. Um, it's already been such a full morning of, of singing and, and going to you in prayer um, and, uh, and just being together here uh, on the Lord's Day. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your kindness uh, to call us together. For this time, and we pray now uh, that you would help us as we hear from you in your word. Please help me. Uh, please help all of us to be shaped according uh, to your word today. Uh, so we thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So we moved into our house about four years ago, and when we moved into the house, it was it was in very good shape. There wasn't a whole lot uh, for us to do to be ready to to move into the house. You know, we we painted and did some standard things like that, but overall it was, compared to a lot of moves, it was a very smooth and, and easy process. Uh, there was one improvement that, that I knew I was going to have to make once we moved in though, and that was to our mailbox. It was a nice mailbox, uh, but it was, just, it was just kind of worn out. And I think it had been like bumped by cars backing up uh, a few times, to the point where it was like leaning pretty heavily in one direction, uh, it was very loose in the ground, and eventually uh, it just kind of fell over. And so I realized, okay, Time to replace uh, the mailbox. So I set out to replace it. And since it was one of the, the first like little projects uh, in our new home, I, I kind of took my time with it. I wanted to make sure it looked as nice as possible. I kind of put a little base of, of, of bricks around it and, and stones as an extra touch. And I, I admit I still feel this little kind of like warmth inside when I go out to get the mail now and I look down and think, oh, it's just such a nice setup. But of course, The mailbox itself is not actually a big deal. Putting this new mailbox in did not change the Zillow estimate uh, on our house. People don't notice it, uh, much to my disappointment, and some of you have been to my house, but no one, not one person has complimented me on how nice the mailbox is, and I'm realizing now it's just probably not a huge deal either way. But that wasn't the case uh, for a gentleman named Keith Strong, a resident of the upscale Woodmore golf community in Northern Virginia. Unlike me, he had a functioning mailbox. It was a standard $35 mailbox that he installed when he moved into the house. A few years later, he replaced that mailbox uh, with an updated one. But as soon as he did that, he got a letter in the mail from his homeowners association. And that letter said that he had to get rid of that mailbox and buy a new standardized mailbox uh, that the whole community was getting. And that cost for that was going to be $500. (laughs) It's a nice neighborhood. I guess that's what they do. I don't know. Well, Keith Strong was was not having this, and so he launched a fight and eventually a lawsuit with the aim of keeping his old mailbox. About seven years and $33,000 in legal fees later, Keith Strong won his case. (laughs) Did he? Well... (laughs) <laughs> and he was allowed to keep his original mailbox. Strong called it a victory for homeowners everywhere. So rejoice homeowners, Keith Strong has fought your battle. I've actually mentioned this story before because I just think it's such an interesting one and such an instructive one. You know, without getting into to who was right and, and who was wrong, whether or not it's wise to spend $33,000 in a fight over mailboxes, we can see that this conflict was about far more than the mailbox, right? This was about power. This was about clashing desires. You had the community's desire for conformity. You had Mr. Strong's desire for autonomy. What is it that caused this conflict in the Little Woodmore golf community? It was desires, right? And what is is it that is at the root of most conflicts even in the church? Desires. Sometimes the desires themselves are okay. Sometimes they're, they're not so good. But probably always, they need to be thought about and interrogated, and that is what James, the author of this letter to Christians in the first century AD, does in our passage today. As I said uh, the last time I preached uh, in the book of James, this is a very bracing book in the Bible. It's heavy on bringing us under conviction for our sin, but if we have ears to hear James, it's also an invitation into a much better way. And this morning, we want to consider both the ways uh, that we go wrong and the consequences of this wrongdoing, but we also want to consider the better way that the Lord, because he loves us, holds out to us today. And I think this passage comes along at an especially relevant time, that this is a time where there's plenty of conflict, right, both in the world, around us, and even at times in churches. This passage helps us, I think, to, to think through the inevitable conflicts that come visit a church community, and we'll begin here with verses one to three, which I'll read again. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it. On your passions. So James is here building on what he has said at the end of chapter 3, where he detailed what true wisdom from God looked like. You might remember, he said, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James cares very much about peace within the churches that he is addressing because this peace, he says, reflects the goodness of the God of peace. Unfortunately, the churches uh, that he is writing to are not known for this kind of peace, and so James is going to take them to task for this. And to do this, James does not actually address, you know, the specifics of the actual conflicts that are happening. Whatever they were, we really don't know uh, the intimate details of what was happening We know that there were quarrels and fights, but we're not sure, you know, precisely what they were about. And what they were about was clearly of secondary importance to James because he takes a step behind these quarrels and gets to the root cause of them. And what is the root cause? He says it's the passions and desires that that the people in these churches have. People are desiring certain things. Other people are desiring other things, and those things are coming into conflict And rather than examining their own desires, the Christians are fighting over them. When we have uh, our pastoral prayers, which which Matt just did, we often pray acknowledging that every single one of us is bringing different burdens with us uh, to church. And that's very true, but the reality is that every single one of us are also bringing uh, different desires to church. And those desires sometimes, yes, are, are, are wrong and selfish, But often, they are not. Often, they just have to do with with different ideas, even ideas about how the church should function. Some might desire a certain worship style that emphasizes one aspect of of what it means to follow God, while others might desire a different style that that emphasizes something else. Some might desire sermons that that are briefer and, and heavy on application, while others might desire longer sermons that are heavier on explaining the passage. Some might desire that the church do one thing with its building and grounds, while others might desire something else. During COVID, some believed and therefore desired that, that the church should approach the pandemic one way, while others had a different idea. Believe me, and, and I'm sure you do, there's a long list of desires at play when a group of around 200 people come together in a church community. And it's, again, in itself, that is not a bad thing, Uh, at all. It's totally normal, and living together, even though we sometimes desire different things, is one way that God grows and matures us. However, when our desires, even even the good ones, are not folded into a deeper desire for the things that James talked about back in chapter 3, a desire for peace in the church, that's when things can quickly go wrong, because when this happens, our desires become disordered. That's where not just the desire, but the conflict of desire starts to tear down the church. And James here specifically refers to coveting, simply desiring something that God has not decided to give at that time. And James is clear about where this coveting, where this conflict of desire leads. He says when these desires are frustrated, the Christians are murdering, they're fighting, and they they quarrel. Now, were the Christians of these churches actually murdering each other? Some commentators think it was absolutely possible that this was happening. But it seems even more likely that James is using this strong language to emphasize just how awful it is that there is this kind of fighting and quarreling going on in a place that should be known for its peace. That word murder, I think, can wake us up to how serious it is when these fights and these quarrels break out. And some of you have been through really hard ones in church contexts. You've been through maybe even church splits when unchecked desires tear a church apart. You know how awful and how painful that is. I think that's why James is using such strong language here. From here, James takes, I think, kind of a surprising turn towards prayer. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. I think the idea here, once again, goes back to the idea of desire. The Christians in these churches did not seem to desire the right things. You might remember earlier in the letter, James reminded his readers that there is a prayer that God answers. This is a prayer for wisdom. And as James has said, this wisdom is the wisdom that leads to peace and not quarreling. And so the churches don't seem to be asking for this wisdom, they seem to be asking according to their own desires, not according to the good and peace of the larger church. And specifically, in this case, it seems they desire material wealth, material gain, which we've talked about again earlier in James. These themes are running through so that they could spend it on themselves. Their prayers were not centered around the good and peace of the community. Their prayers were not centered around gaining wisdom so that they could bless their community. Their prayers were centered around their agenda and their own comfort. And for this, James offers them a very sharp rebuke, which we see in verses 4 to 10. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, you can obviously tell by the way that James addresses the people that he is serious. (laughs) Whereas before in the letter, he has addressed them warmly, calling them uh, brothers and, and beloved brothers. He now says, You adulterous people. Just like he earlier used the term murder to classify their quarreling, now he uses the word adultery to describe their sin. That's obviously a very serious word, and and James is certainly hoping that his audience will see it as such, that they would realize in their behavior that they have chosen the way of the world over the way of God. They've committed spiritual adultery by opposing the Lord. And how have they opposed the Lord? They have opposed the Lord by opting for friendship with the world. Now, at this point, we need to slow down and remember that friendship as spoken in the first century was different than the friendship that we often speak about and think of today. One commentator uh, points out, said, friendship in antiquity, was usually taken far more seriously than in today's Western world as a lifelong pact between people with shared values and loyalties. There's a deep, deep, deep sense of commitment to the word friendship. And so when James references friendship here, he's speaking of a level of commitment that these Christians have given to a way of life that they should not be committed to in the least. How does James know that they have chosen friendship with the world? By the way, that they have sought to serve their own desires, leading to arguing, conflicts, and quarrels. Basically, as the rest of this passage bears out, that they're acting with pride instead of acting with humility. And they're assuming that their desires should trump the desires of others. And they are valuing their own desires over humbly giving themselves to the peace of the church. But fortunately for James's audience, fortunately for us, the desires of the people are not the only desire at play in this passage. While the people are arguing and fighting over their own desires, their God, who still loves them, is desiring something much better for them. James reminds them that he says, scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Now there's actually a bunch of mystery over what what this section is trying to say. For example, no one is sure exactly what section of scripture uh, James is referring to when he says this is what scripture says also we aren't sure exactly how to word that the phrase that James is referring to and and does the spirit here does that refer to the human spirit that God has made us with does it receive does it refer to the holy spirit that we receive when we follow Jesus I have general opinions on these questions but I think it's much better for us to stay general because the general thrust here is what is important And the general idea is that the way these Christians were living was out of step with who God made them and called them to be. And because God loves them, he desires so much more for them. God wants them to follow him, God wants them to flourish. He yearns over them. You might remember that Jesus, the Son of God, when he came upon the city of Jerusalem, he expressed a similar longing. He looked and he said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That's the heart of the Lord that is being expressed here by James. And despite how these Christians have have fought and bickered and, and murdered, James reminds them that God gives more grace. He stands ready to graciously welcome them home of the father and the the story of the prodigal son and the path to this welcome home is for God's people to repent. You know, as I've gotten uh, a bit older and entered middle age, I've noticed that my doctors have been more enthusiastic about getting certain tests and procedures done. Instead of like assuring me that that, that I'm fine, nothing to worry about, they they now tend to say, you know what, let's let's do a test, let's do a procedure to find out, you know, what's going on. I have one such procedure coming up in a few weeks. I'm not looking forward to it. And that's fine. I I know it's all part of the deal. My doctors are looking out for me. They'd rather me go through a little bit of discomfort now as opposed to something far worse and far deadlier later if I don't take care of things now. And that's a little bit what James is getting at when he tells the Christians how to respond with repentance to their own quarreling and fighting. Something to be done now to avoid a world of hurt later when God brings his judgment to bear on them. And what does it mean for them to repent? I was listening to a sermon uh, by Pastor and Professor Jonathan Pennington last week. He was talking about repentance and the different ideas that pop into our minds when we hear that word. And here is what he said that repentance actually does look like. He said this. He said, repentance is not a message of condemnation. Repentance is an invitation to turn. An invitation to adopt a new way of understanding yourself and a new way of understanding God. Repentance is an invitation to turn from inhabiting the world in one way with its habits and loves and actions and beliefs to a different way. Repentance is turning from self and actually turning to God, not just in heart, but in actions. Dr. Pennington was, was preaching on a different passage when he said this, but, it, but it's very much what we see described here in James 4. These Christians were inhabiting the world in a certain way, and now they're being commanded, and in that command, graciously invited to a different way. The Christians had an idea of what the good life looked like, you know, acting on and, and fulfilling their own desires. But James knows that this leads nowhere. And so he's calling them to something better. He's calling them to true life. And this true life involves not, not the pride of following their own desires, but, but humbling themselves instead. As this selfish pride has been at the heart of their quarreling, they are reminded that God opposes the proud. Embracing God means embracing humility. And just as the era of of ancient Rome had, had a different understanding of friendship than we do, they also had a different understanding of humility. I think most people today will at least say that humility is a good thing, but that was not the case back then. Humility was not something that was aspired to. If you said, hey, that guy is really humble, that was not a compliment like it might be now. But James is calling them to live differently from the world around them. And so they are to submit to God, recognizing that he is greater than them. They are to resist the devil, which reminds them that they really did have an enemy that that loved to see them divided and quarreling. And by giving into this quarreling and fighting, they were resisting God and embracing the devil. James is calling them to go the other way. And so instead of resisting God, they are to draw near. And this drawing near involves specific actions. James tells them to cleanse their hands, purify their hearts, invoking language from the Old Testament that tied external actions together with, with interchange. He calls them sinners. He calls them double-minded. James is is on a roll, (laughs) and he is emphasizing how dire things are to his audience. And for this reason, James calls them to a certain disposition, to be wretched and mourn and weep, to turn their laughter to mourning, to turn their joy to gloom. Such an interesting command because it, it feels so out of step, doesn't it, with what we usually think? And even with most of the new testament we we sang earlier let us be known by our joy right elsewhere the author paul calls the church to rejoice in the lord always and again i say rejoice as matt referenced earlier but as we consider these seemingly conflicting commands we remember another word from another author in the old testament that there is a time for everything a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance And given what has happened in these churches, given the selfishness and and conflict and division, it is indeed a time to mourn for them. And this is all part of the process of humbling themselves, as James has called them to, so that the Lord might exalt them. The Lord in his love desires to, to restore them as they draw near to him, but first they need to see how dire their situation is. This is one of the many reasons that 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 confession is such an important part of of following Jesus, and one reason that we confess our sins together every week. That step of of confession and assurance, I think it it snaps us out of two things that we can all be prone to. Number one, we can all be prone to self-righteousness, so it's really important for us to acknowledge our sinfulness. But number two, we're also prone to believing that our sins have made us worthless in God's sight. So we always, always receive assurance from Him that this is not the case. So you see this in James: things have gotten bad for these churches, but there is a way home for them—a way that includes confession and leads to restoration. And this is what James desires, and it's what God desires for them, and it's what God desires for us: peace with Him that is lived out in peace with one another, and that peace with one another is addressed. Again, in in a couple of our final verses here, verses 11 and 12, two verses that I think are absolutely critical for churches as we're going to hope to survive and flourish in this day and age. Verse 11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge there's only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor see in this section James moves beyond speaking generally about the desires that were tearing the churches apart to one specific way that this was being played out in their speech it's a topic that that James has already considered uh, in chapter 3 but he returns to it here given its importance and he gets a little bit more specific. James begins, I think, simply enough by calling his hearers not to speak evil against one another. We'll come back to that, but for a moment, see what James equates this kind of speech to. He equates speaking evil of one another to judging the law. Why is speaking this way judging the law? Because the law commands us to love God and love our neighbor. And when we disregard the law and go ahead and speak evil of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are saying, in effect, that, that the law actually doesn't matter, doesn't apply to the situation. We've judged it to be irrelevant, and we've made ourselves out to be God because that type of judgment is meant to be left to him. God is the one who saves and destroys, not us. And when we speak evil and when we judge our neighbor in this way, we assume that we, that we know better than his law. And better than him. But we need to, I think, drill down a little bit more because we need to understand what it means to speak in this way. Because clearly, you know, it's not like we just say nice things. The Bible does not forbid all sorts of criticism. Because we love each other, we are called at times to say the hard things to each other. If we think someone is doing something unwise or hurting themselves or especially sinning against the Lord, love demands that we speak up in this way. And you know, leaders in a church are not exempt from this. It's actually doubly true. If, if church members believe that, that church leaders are doing something uh, unwise or even sinful, they should absolutely speak up and they should be listened to. So what does our speech to and one another look like in order to honor one another and honor God? According to this passage, it is speech that is humble. Speech that does not assume that we know best and that those who disagree with us are foolish. Speech that acknowledges our own limited perspective and our own fallibility. And it's speech that does not put ourselves on the pedestal of the condemning judge of others. So our speech comes down from what one person called the altitude of judgment to the level ground of brother and sisterhood. And this humility leads to a second aspect of our speech, and this is the refusal to jump to and assume certain motives about other people. This is so tempting for all of us, myself included. And I think it's such a critical thing for churches living through contentious times. See, the thing is, one of the ways that God has made us (laughs) is that we love to try to explain the world around us. That's generally a good thing. But one of the things we will naturally do is try to explain the actions of others that, that affect us, even actions that aren't necessarily good or bad in themselves. We're all interpreting the world around us, including the people around us, including at times even the people in our church family. And this is especially true during difficult seasons, seasons of turbulence, when, it, when it's not easy to make sense of things. So the question is, when we interpret the world around us, what type of posture Will we adopt? Will we choose the path of humility, or will we choose the path of pride? Will we, in love for our brothers and sisters, choose generosity as we do this work of interpretation? Now, again, I'm talking about gray area matters, wisdom matters here. I'm not talking about when someone sins against you, an abusive situation harms you, any of those things. Those are dealt with differently. But in these other matters, will we rush to assuming bad motives or will we labor in love to consider that my interpretation of someone else's motives may very well be far off? And will we exercise some degree of moral imagination to consider how my brother or sister's actions might not represent what I immediately think it does? It's hard work, and we need God's grace to do it. We all know that the last couple of years have been very hard on churches, disagreements about politics, disagreements about COVID policies, other things. I think those disagreements have happened at almost every church. I have yet to hear of one where it hasn't happened. But honestly, as, as I've reflected on this, on this strange period of history, but both inside and outside of the church, I, I really think the disagreements in themselves, they, they have a degree of, of health to them. When, when you are a church, you're called to share your life together, and, and sharing our lives together include uh, what we think about, these hard topics, especially when there's no specific and clear biblical roadmap. And we're not, certainly not called to rigid conformity when it comes to our opinions on these matters. I think where things can go sideways is where motive starts to be assumed. I think that's where our speech becomes judgmental, as James refers to here, because God knows the motives, but we do not. And the root of so much discord, I think, in life and even in churches is when we critically assume the motives of others. This plays out... In all kinds of ways, and certainly over the last few years of controversy and difficulty in the world and in the church. It happens when we assume that the person who was more cautious than us during COVID was choosing fear over faith. While we assume the person less cautious than us didn't care about their neighbors. It happens when we assume the person who votes differently than us did so because they're evil, ignorant, brainwashed, or a fool. And on and on it goes. And as we live in a culture where this kind of speech is more and more the norm, be it on social media or certain TV shows, whatever it is, we need to be clear that thinking and especially speaking in this way is choosing friendship with the world over friendship with God. Friendship with God means that the church chooses to speak with love, generosity, and humility, pursuing the wisdom that leads to peace. That's what it looks like for the church, for the American church, to return to and follow the Lord. The path is godly humility and charitable judgment. And when this path is chosen, the church grows in its godliness and beauty. We're here to choose friendship with our peace and humility-loving God over friendship with our often proud and often anger-loving world. I hope you can see how beautiful this path is and how much of an oasis the church has the potential to be in a world where pride and anger is the norm. When the church says no to its worldly desires for pride, and when the church says yes to dealing with one another humbly and charitably, the church is a beautiful place to be. The kind of place where we're not always wondering what people think of us. The kind of place where we can be confident that the other's will give us grace and strive to believe the best about us, just like we would see in a healthy family. The kind of place where we are free to love one another because we don't have to feel like we need to be guarded and be on the defensive. The kind of place that reflects the kingdom of God, a joyful kingdom. I'm so thankful for the many ways Meadowcroft reflects this. And I hope that we'll continue to grow in this direction. It's the kind of thing I know we desire, and I hope we desire it, more because it reflects the desires of our Lord Jesus who knew plenty and knows plenty about these matters. When we consider his incredible patience, remember from the gospel of John with his disciples again and again, we marveled at it. When we saw how he endured the harsh judgments of others, when we hear him talk about the way he was judged by so many in the world that he created, saying as he did in Matthew 11, very well knew what it was like to be judged harshly and critically. And those judgments led him all the way to a cross, a cross that he endured and even purposely went towards, not ultimately because of the sinful desires of his enemies, but because of his greater desire that a people like us would be pursued and forgiven, and that a people like us would represent him imperfectly, but truly in a world that is desperate for grace. He gives more grace. So he still loves us, he still pursues us, and he calls us to follow him and share that grace with one another in peace. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the ways that you continue to, to pursue us and show kindness towards us. We acknowledge that it is can be extremely difficult to, to walk through uh, times where we're uncertain and very difficult to walk through uh, times together in peace with one another and we thank you for all the ways that you have uh, sustained us as a church and and even knit us together uh, during the last few years and we pray you would continue that good work and grow that good work uh, as we continue uh, to walk together uh, in peace and we pray it would be a peace that reflects you Uh, That reflects uh, your character. And we do pray that it would stand out brightly uh, in a a dark world. Lord, help us to be your witnesses uh, to this generation, Lord. We thank you so much for your word, and we thank you uh, that you love and pursue us. We thank you for Jesus and all that he endured for us, and the promise that he will return one day to make all things right and all things new, and that we will truly live together in peace throughout all eternity, because of his great work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.